You're listening to KPCRLP, Santa Cruz 101.9 FM. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to Drinks with Tony. What weird things have you done during COVID? Me? I'm glad you asked. I bought a ukulele in March because I knew I'd be a virtuoso by now. And I only played it once. Then I thought about going back to learning French. Mon Dieu, je suis nul engagement. Then the crushing loneliness kicked in. So I said, hello, wine. Hello, wine, my new friend. Let's just push down these feelings. Shove them down. By the way, if you need to gain some weight and kill some brain cells, I highly advise drinking lots and lots of wine. But through all of these mishaps, doing this show keeps me at a level of sanity that my therapist is proud of. Speaking of therapy, what is up with every podcast advertising online therapy? And how do they how much do they get every time they advertise? How much how much money do they get when they pimp therapy on their shows? Note to self, figure out how to pimp therapy for money on this show. Hi, I'm Art Bell, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Art Bell. Art Bell was the TV executive that founded the, the comedy channel, which became Comedy Central. And then he continued his career in television as president of Court TV. Now, a writer, Art Bell's memoir is out, and it's called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Tony? I'm okay. Did I get anything wrong in that intro? No, that was great. That was oh, perfect. All right. I, I would have done the same intro myself. Really? Uh, <laughs> you probably, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to intro yourself sometimes, you know? It's almost like sex. Well, no, that's easier. I, we're, going, that's, we're going way too far, way too far. I, I can't comment on that in this era. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be a hashtag. Yeah, right. how, how do you start? How do you start one of the greatest? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest like cable TV stations in the you know that that's out there. How do you start that and lose your sense of humor? Well, I wrote the memoir because I you know I assumed that a lot of people watching Comedy Central think that it just kind of showed up one day and was instantly successful, and it wasn't instantly successful. The first year after we launched was just the craziest time because the critics hated us. We didn't have any revenue. We were trying to figure out what our programming was really looking like, what our audience was. And we had competition. MTV networks, six months after we launched MTV networks launched a competitive comedy network and they call it ha the comedy network. And that started the comedy wars. So the reason I, subtitled it that is because about halfway through the year the head of hbo who had greenlit the whole thing and wanted to make a big big deal out of comedy central comedy channel he called us in and he's because it was going so badly and he he was embarrassed i think and he said you know it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor and i looked around and none of us were laughing because we knew how serious this was so I spent the first year assuming they was they were going to just shut us off at any minute. That's how bad it was going. But that's um, what's what I love about that is how 
you know, there's an idea and the, the need to like develop it and to like throw different programming at it and to, it, it feels like projects like that need to be nurtured and mistakes need to be made. There needs to be room for the, for the awfulness. I mean, it's a lot harder in TV because the stakes are so high, I would think. Well, the stakes were pretty high here too, because, you know, in the, in, when we launched in the late eighties, early nineties, it cost a lot of money to launch a channel. You had to have infrastructure. You know, it was before digital really kind of hit. So you needed an uplink facility that could uplink your, you know, your, your signal. And that's why it was great starting it inside of HBO. I was working at HBO when I pitched the idea. And uh, that's how we got it started. But it, just think of it. These days, you can launch a cable channel or anything. You can launch any channel out of your garage if you want, you know. It's completely different. But in those days, it was expensive. There was a lot at stake. HBO's reputation was at stake because they'd made such a big deal about how, how good the channel was going to be. So when it launched and it wasn't so good, you know, that was trouble. That was definitely trouble. Um, I, remember, I remember someone telling me, there's a, there's, a cha- there's, gonna, there's a channel on TV that just shows stand-up comedy all day. And I was like, what? It just blew my mind. I was like, wow. And I didn't know what to think of it. And I was just like, huh. And then, you know, look at us now where South Park is part of, I mean, these things like South Park are part of the mythology of our storytelling. It's true. We've really, you know, Comedy Central became part of the pop culture, part of the culture, period. Yeah. In in America. Actually, you talk about watching them, about the channel being all stand-up. It was never all stand-up. Oh, okay. Yeah, we did. We had a bunch of stand-up in there, but it was never all stand-up. Our, our first big hit was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Really? Yeah. I love that. that. Yeah. Who doesn't, right? Yeah. And, and that, uh, that started, not, not that started, we, we got Mystery Science Theater 3000 in the mail at Comedy, Central, at Comedy Channel. They sent it to us. They were, they were just some guys in Minneapolis doing the show for fun. Uh-huh. and having a fun time doing it. And then when we announced we, go, we were going to do the comedy channel, they sent it to us. And that was, it was so good. You know, we flew right out there. We made a deal and everything, had them on. But it was so good. I realized that, you know, one of my hopes and dreams for the comedy network would be that it would attract innovative comedy programming that could go nowhere else. I mean, you know, MST3000 was going to show up on NBC or HBO or anywhere. Right. You know, and we, we were kind of created to give that kind of thing a home uh, and nurture it there. So we, we immediately, I immediately felt good about the direction of the channel when I saw, comedy, uh, when I saw Mystery Science Theater 3000 come in. And I didn't know that, I mean, what a way to do it. Just send you a tape of a, of a completed show, essentially. They, they sent you the... Yeah, well, they had been doing the show at a at a TV station. Okay, a yeah, TV station, and uh, it was funny because they were they were just pulling movies off the shelf. Uh-huh. So they sent us, I believe, they sent us The Godfather. <laughs> and the thing is, The Godfather, you license that for TV. You can't do anything to it. Yeah. You can't put your puppets in front of it and make jokes. Um, but they didn't know that, and they didn't care. So the thing is, we had to explain to them, look, guys, we're going to have to do this with movies we can put on like that public domain movies which basically means crappy horror films that somebody abandoned the copyright to to, you know years ago so that's how we started and that's what we did and uh it was great 
I think, and I think that set the tone to that show so well because I, w- I would rather watch them. You know, I want to see Hobgoblins. I would never see a movie like that in my life. But if it's on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and they're talking about it in front of me, I'm, then I'm watching it through the whole thing. So, it is so interesting. You know, they've developed riff tracks out of that. Are you familiar with riff tracks? I've heard of it, yeah. Riff tracks is basically the same thing. It's just audio that you can sync up to any movie. It's the same guys. It's the Mystery yeah. Science Theater 3000 guys. And some of the movies, the modern movies they do are great. But I really love it when they do a terrible movie. You know, just a, either an old terrible movie or a new terrible movie. Uh, because that's what makes it really funny. So, yeah, yeah. I, like, I, like the monster, I like the monster pictures the best. They're yeah, fun. So, yeah. when, when, um, when, it, when you're working at HBO... Or when did you get the idea? Was just like you know what? Let's start the let's do a program. Let's do it. Let's do a whole channel on comedy. Let's move forward in this direction. What what was the uh, what, how did that idea come about? And then how long did it take to actually uh, come to a realization? Well, I mean, the story really starts when I was a kid. I loved comedy and I uh, watched all the comedy I could. I was listening to the comedy albums from those days. George Carlin, you remember those things? Oh yeah, Robert Klein and. So by the time I got to high school, I decided I want to write comedy. So we started an underground newspaper and I wrote satire. That was in the heyday of National Lampoon. They were kind of our heroes in those days. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I went to college, studied economics, got my first job out of college as an economist. Even though I loved comedy so much and I loved, I was, I was in theater in, in college and everything, I decided, you know, I really like economics. I'm going to do this. Yeah. So I did that for a couple, three years and decided I could not spend my life doing this. And I went back to school. I went to grad school and at grad school, I said, hey, you know, so it was a business school, Wharton Business School. And I said, what, what are guys like me, you know, who want to get into the entertainment industry? Where, where are the other students like that? And they said, well, we don't really give any classes on that kind of stuff, but we do have the Wharton Follies. And the Wharton Follies was a musical sat- satirical review that they did every year. The students did, wrote it, produced it, the whole thing. So I joined up with them. It turns out they had like professionals like me, <laughs> you know, professionals. I was a professional economist, but they had a professionals from Broadway who, des- who decided to go to business school. So the thing was, you know, all the people who loved the arts and loved musicals and loved the entertainment business, you know, showed up there. And we put on very professional shows. I wrote it the second year. I wrote the show the second year. Came out great. And I said, you know, I really like this comedy stuff. I really think it's, you know, I reminded myself how much I like comedy. So when I got out of school, I got a job with CBS and I looked around at the television business and I said, wait a second, where's the all comedy network. I mean, you know, why isn't there an all comedy network? There's all music, all, all news, all science fiction, but there was no all comedy channel. And I, I was just, I sat there scratching my head. I spent two years at CBS. I didn't really talk to pe- people a lot about it there, my idea, because it was a big company and I didn't think I was going to get anywhere with it. But when I went to HBO, that was a much smaller company and they were, crazily successful they were the most successful television going on and they were doing great things so i started talking it up there a little bit you know with people you know i ran into people i worked with some people from the comedy department because hbo as you know was doing great comedy then they were doing stand-up specials with 
Whoopi and, and uh, Robin Williams. They, they were the only place to go for stand-up specials at that time. Wasn't it? it was like if you were a huge comedian, you did HBO. It wasn't that yeah. how it went? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when you think about it, they were doing them at a very high level of production value. And you couldn't see that stuff. You couldn't see those, those performances uncut and uncensored anywhere else unless you went to a club. You know, to a comedy club. So HBO really was starting to make its reputation that way. The other place you could see comedy in those days, amazingly enough, was at A&E. The A&E channel ran something called A&E at the Improv. I think it was pretty much seven nights a week at 730. Hmm. And it was a stand-up show, very, relatively inexpensive guy at a mic with against a brick wall stand-up show. And they, you know, they put any comedian they could find through that thing and they got all the rights and it was a, you know, it was a show. They got to be known for comedy on, ba on basic cable. You know, if you said, okay, so where do you, where do you find comedy on basic cable? HBO is uh, pay cable and ADT improv is basic cable. That's, that's what they said. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, HBO is going to lose the franchise to A&E who is also known for comedy. I don't know. And, and they also can't, um, there's more censorship involved in those days on basic cable. Oh yeah, basic cable. I mean, those, those guys were working clean. Yeah. They were working clean. They were talking about all kinds of topics, but they were working clean on, on A&E. Yeah. So I started, you know, seriously talking to people about this and nobody was really thinking it was a great idea, partly because HBO had such a strong position in comedy that they didn't think they needed anything else to make a stronger position. I mean, that's really what it was. Yeah. Um, finally, I went to the head of HBO programming because I figured, okay, I got to get this, this idea to somebody who can do something about it. And I started telling her about the idea. Her name was Bridget. And I just barely got through saying 24 hour, seven day a week cable comedy channel. When she said, that is the worst idea I have ever heard. <laughs> She said, is she no, around today so you could tell her, hey, look what I did? <laughs> well, actually, if you read the book, you're going to see how this all progressed. But she said, no, you can't do it because no comedians would want to be on a channel like that. Who's going to watch 24 hours of cable comedy? And there's plenty of comedy on the dial. And why would HBO stake the reputation on that? And yeah. basically said, bye. <laughs> you know? And that was the end of the meeting. And I walked out without having said too much. And having had my idea really kind of, you know, spiked at that point. But by the time I got to the elevator, I thought, you know, she's just wrong. She's wrong. HBO should do a comedy network. Um, and I kept the idea alive inside myself. That's for sure. When, when, you, when you wrote the, uh, the, the, the for, for college, when you wrote the theater, um, the comedy, it, was that the first time you heard your, like your, uh, your, your, the, what you wrote? delivered to a live audience? Yes. And it was, it was really kind of thrilling. I, I mean, I hear that from everybody who works in television. You know, the comedy writers that I've met along, along uh, you know, through the years. I have a very close friend who's a, a sitcom writer. And he was saying the same thing. You know, when you write something and then there it is coming alive on a set or in, in my case on, you know, on stage. And in my case, you got an audience, you know, reacting to it instantly. Yeah. And you can, you can say, Oh man, that worked. And also that didn't work. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Which it's is equally so brutal. Uh, thrilling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, one of the things I found out about doing a little bit of, I didn't do stand up really, although I was on stage by myself 
doing some stuff in college and, and quite a bit in grad school. Um, the difference in audience from one night to another is just, it's profound, it's unpredictable, and it messes you up sometimes. Because, you know, one night you could do something, tell a joke, place goes nuts, you know, whatever the, whatever the line was. And the next night, now you're kind of anticipating it, you know, you're kind of saying, okay, here it comes, you know, yeah. if I get a little bit more behind it, I'm going to get even a bigger response, you know? Yeah. So you say the line and then the thing dies and you're just listening to the crickets and you, you've actually stopped expecting a huge amount of reaction and there's no reaction. You feel like a complete idiot up there. So I, that was, that was a very interesting lesson in comedy for me, which I, and I heard stand-up comics talk about the same kind of thing. Yeah. I feel like uh, people will, especially with stand-up, it's almost like you learn more bombing than you do, you know, killing in a club. You, you, the, that where you're, where you're, where the, the days where the audience is rough, it's like, okay, how do I tweak that to get the whole room back on my side? You know, how, especially, when, especially when you thought it was, you know, some of your best materials getting slammed. And that happens to every comedian. That happens to every comedian. Yeah. Right? They get up there with their, with great material. It doesn't work. And they have to have a, a talk with themselves. <laughs> about so what it, happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, so, you get the green light and they're like, Hey, you know what? We're going to do this comedy thing. Let's do the channel that what, what's what, what was that day like when you were? Well, actually it, it kind of came in two stages. When, when Bridget turned it down, you know, when she said it was a stupid idea, I pretty much said, okay, Bridget doesn't like it. It's not going to happen at HBO. And I had been working in another job, actually working on a pay TV channel that they wanted to get launched called Festival, which was a channel, it was a pay channel with no sex, violence, and bad language. And that I sounds terrible. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. I remember walking in the first day. I mean, I was excited about the new job because I right. had been an analyst and doing forecasting and stuff. And here I was at least getting a little closer to the product, you know? Yeah. And I said, I, I walked in, I said, you know, no sex, violence, and bad language. This isn't going to work. No. <laughs> and my new boss looked up at me and said, don't ever say that again. And I never did. And we tried like hell to get it to work, but it just, you know, how do you, how do you advertise a channel or any entertainment by what it doesn't have? Especially yeah. sex violence and bad language, which kind of made cable TV. Uh, yeah. And they, even pay TV for HBO. Now was, now was there someone with that, uh, at that channel who really championed that programming and was just really trying to push it through and excited about it? The way the channel, that channel happened is they did research on why HBO wasn't in every home in America <laughs> because they thought they should be in every home in America. So yeah. when they started to figure out, wait, wait a second, we're not being bought everywhere. Why not? They did some research and they found out the top two reasons. First reason, it's too expensive. I don't want to pay that much money for HBO. Second reason, which wasn't real close to the first reason, a smaller number of people said, you know what, I don't want sex violence and bad language on television in my home because I don't like it or I have kids and I don't want them seeing it. You know, they had some good reasons. And the I grew, up, I grew there, up a Jehovah's Witness. So All right, so you know, what, you know whereof I speak. Yeah, um, but my, my parents would have loved Festival and the whole congregation would have loved it because they would have said, oh, great. When we had HBO, they were very on top of like, don't watch anything that's rated R. 
And every night when they would sleep, I would sneak to that. I, I remember trying to watch, um, I was try, I was like, oh my God, an R-rated movie comes on. Maybe there's going to be a topless woman. Maybe I'll see some nudity. And I watched Barfly. <laughs> I didn't even know who Bukowski was. I'm like watching the whole thing for a nipple. I got none of it. Anyway. It's a good movie though. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was basically it was a, it was a channel that was aimed at guys like you and you know people homes like yours. Yeah. Uh, and we launched it, and it didn't do very well for a, a lot of reasons. One was never under never under, underestimate the competition. That's what I learned there. We launched it, and Disney immediately transformed themselves from a kids channel to we're a channel for your family, and they started putting you know, G-rated movies on the channel, which uh, really undercut the marketplace for us. But to make a long story short, it didn't happen. So I was benched. In those days, they didn't just fire you if, if your project died. Um, they just said, you know, sit tight. We'll figure out what to do with you at some point. So I, had not, I didn't have a whole lot to do. I knew that HBO wasn't going to do the comedy channel the way I wanted to or at all. So I started writing it up in the hope that I would take it to another company, try and get a job in another company in television, and maybe they'd like it, you know. So I was putting the whole thing together, and my boss's boss walks by my office and says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm working on this idea I have for a comedy channel. He says, let me see. So he looks at the whole thing, and he says, you know, I really think the chairman of HBO, Michael Fuchs, should see this right away. I said, oh, great. And he said, let's go. And he walked me at that moment into the chairman's office, which was, I don't know how to explain. You know, I was a lower level executive, you know, I'd see the chairman from afar once in a while. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. But he spoke to the company. So the idea of walking into his office without an appointment was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. But we walked in, he walked me in and I pitched it and he said, yeah, it sounds kind of cool. Uh, asked me some questions, costs, how are we going to keep our costs down at the beginning and stuff like that? I answered them. And uh, he said, okay, well, let's, let's see if that'll work. That's, it sounds pretty good. Let's see if that'll work. So he had me do some research and everything. I ended up doing a presentation to all the executives a couple months later, showing them a demo tape. This is what it looks like. Everybody's applauding. And Michael says, yeah, great. Let's do it. And he says, I want it launched in six months. And we, I went, oh, no. <laughs> what have I just gotten myself into? Um, and the other thing he did was he announced, he made a huge announcement out of it. And I was kind of saying, well, do you really want to make a huge announcement out of it before we get on the air or, you know, get closer to airtime, see what's going on? He goes, this is going to be the biggest thing that ever hit <laughs> entertainment. And I guess ultimately he was right, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't that way on day one. The, the day we launched was just not great. It was not great. And the critics, trashed us just said this is this is the gong show channel this is the worst television what were they thinking hbo should know better they could do better than this i mean we got every bad review you can imagine for the critics and we had no audience essentially you know we launched in a few systems but we had no real audience and i thought they were going to turn us off but as i said the things that kept me going two things i always pictured the comedy network when it was successful to be a place for innovative programming and I always pictured it to be a place where comedians wanted to hang out. And on the day we launched, we had Mystery Science Theater 3000 and comedians loved us. They thought we were, we were making a channel for them. They, yeah. were, they were, you know, 
really grateful that somebody had recognized that what they do, that comedy is an art form like music. And we were giving them the same kind of treatment that music was getting from MTV. To them, that was like way cool. So in my, in my heart, I knew it was going to be successful because that was my vision of the channel. But in reality, disaster. And yeah. <laughs> So, so you have the elation of a uh, board of director, the, the, all the executives watching your presentation and the applause. What is that feeling when the, the, the dream that you're like, this is, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. So you have that, that moment of yes. What, what's that moment like? Well, I, as I said, it's elation. I mean, the whole yeah. idea that they took a look at the plan. By then I had a huge presentation and yeah. they looked at the plan and the numbers and you're going to make a billion dollars and this is going to be great. And, you know, here's how we're going to do it. Um, yeah, I was elated and I was, I was um, humbled because yeah. I didn't know the first thing about the comedy business as all the comedy guys pointed out to me constantly. What do you know about comedy? I, you know, I got the channel yeah. started, but, and they, yeah. but they, they knew I was not a piece of the comedy business. And I think that was, that was a little rough for them. So I was, I, I was humbled, but I knew I was in for, you know, not so much a battle, but let's call it an adventure. I knew yeah. this was going to be an adventure because, you know, I did not expect the comedy network to comedy channel to emerge fully formed. I mean, who would, right? Right. Well, I'll tell you who would. Michael Fuchs, the chairman of, of HBO, <laughs> said, go ahead and put it on in six months. I mean, the expectations were incredibly high. Uh, and we just, it, it was almost impossible to deliver what, what, what those expect on those expectations. But I did not give up. I mean, even when all this incoming bad news and people sweating in the company saying, oh my God, what have we done? I said, look, let's figure out what's working and what's not working. Almost immediately, Mystery Science Theater 3000 made it into the pop culture. There was an, a cartoonist at the Village Voice, which you may recall was a big, not underground, but was a, it was a very well-regarded, kind of hippie newspaper. Yeah. And there was a cartoonist in there who started drawing Joel and the bots, you know, the characters from MST 3000 on the side of his panels making remarks. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is great because we are, we are really infiltrating pop culture now. Yeah. Um, so I, I hung on to that. And when we went to cable operators or, advertisers we'd say look you know you can say what you want about us but we got this thing it's gonna it's a cult hit it's got an audience already we're gonna be big and we're doing some other things that are good and uh that's what we you know we were clinging to that for months and months um but as i said there was competition the mtv networks guys launched their channel called ha did i mention that whole thing yeah yeah and we ended up in the comedy wars Whereas there were no comedy channels six months earlier, now there were two. And it was just the most ridiculous situation because the cable operator didn't want to launch, launch two channels. As a matter of fact, they didn't even want to launch one channel. Why? Cost money because we charged the cable operator for it. And number two, they had limited bandwidth. It wasn't like digital where you got 500 channels. Some of these guys had 12 channels. Some of them had 50 channels. That was a big deal. And they didn't want to have two comedy networks on there. So they were really begging us 
to stop the comedy wars, stop fighting each other, pool our resources and, and uh, merge. But we weren't having any of it. I, I thought yeah. we were doing great, you know? We were winning. Right. What was, what was your vision that was different from Ha, the channel? Well, we started with short-form programming. We started with a lot of clips of stand-up comedians, clips from movies, clips from television that were funny. And we had, we had guys like Jon Stewart uh, doing a show called Short Attention Span Theater, um, which I think, you know, as a name for a show is one of the all-time greats. But it was also prescient. Because short form is now the way young people absorb entertainment. You know, they're standing there with their phones and, and, and moving through a lot of short form stuff. That's, that's what they like now. As a matter of fact, around, I don't know, it's 2012 when that stuff really started getting big, when YouTube started getting big. Somebody wrote me and said, hey, you know, you knew this was going to happen because that's how you started Comedy, Comedy Central. I mean, comedy channel but it didn't work ultimately and it didn't work for a bunch of reasons mostly because we got we had permission from the unions to take clips out of movies and television and then just before we launched one of the unions said we don't want you to do that we had a board meeting and we changed our mind that shuts the whole thing down it 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 was about eight weeks before the launch and it basically said art you have no programming (laughs) And that's, I had to scramble. I mean, we had some clips that we could use because it was promoting HBO. So all that big pile of clips that we, we thought we had, we didn't have. So that was one of the reasons it didn't work. We, we just couldn't get enough inventory to make that, to make that a, a steady diet. And also we wanted to put long form programming in there um, anyway. So it, it just pushed us toward long form programming faster than we would have otherwise. And for, it pushed us to stand up faster than we would have because we found out the standup was working as well or better than anything else. What, what was it syncing up with John Stewart? Cause you had, you had been working with him for a while before daily show. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I left around the time I left in 1996. Mm-hmm. The daily show started in 1995 or 96, uh, 96, I guess with Craig Kilborn. Right. I remember that. Yeah. So I was there for the start of it. And he used to do the five, what was it? The five questions. And he brought it over to the late, late show, the five questions. Right, right, right. Yeah. He, he was good, but according to the producers of that show, not good enough. So when John Stewart became available, because John, look, everybody knew John Stewart was a star. He actually was, he was working for us at Comedy Central, the Merge Channel. Uh, When, when Ha and Comedy Channel merged, we renamed it Comedy Central. I stayed with it as a co-head of programming. They brought the other guy over. He was co-head. So we had to develop the program in the channel. But anyway, shoot forward to when uh, John Stewart at that point had been working at MTV networks. He stayed with us for a while. MTV networks realized what a great talent he was. They stole him for, I don't know which show. And then when we did the daily show and Craig Kilborn left, we stole him back, um, which was a good move on everyone's part. I think. Fantastic move. I mean, what, 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 um, it's just so amazing that it went from Craig Kilborn in such a different format and then it moved to Jon Stewart. And then that became the cultural zeitgeist in such a huge way. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about the fact that a channel, you can alter the way you're doing things and shows are like that too. Series are like that too. Movies are not like that. <laughs> yeah. You make a movie, you launch it on Friday. If it bombs by Monday, you're you know up the creek. Yeah. But if, you know, you got to remember Jerry Seinfeld's show, the first 
the first season, it was like hanging by a thread. Yeah. And so they made some changes and then it was no longer hanging by a thread. That's, you can do that with channels. You can do that with series. And you certainly could do that with a live TV show that you're doing every day. You know, like, okay, today we're going to do something else. We're going to try something different. We're going to put different people on. We're going to change the set. There's a million things you can do. So that's why we hung in there with Daily Show. And by the way, I am not taking credit for Daily Show. You know, I, I, that, by the time they were doing that, I was kind of like being pushed aside because uh, they brought new management in. So I and was, did you feel like that was like, that was a good time to just kind of go, you know what, I'm out? Or was it, uh, were you just going, who are you guys? What are you doing to my network? No, no. First of all, I loved the network. I, yeah. It was our network at that point. I mean, you know, there were a lot of people very invested in it. And when they fired my boss, who truthfully, he was a president of the network, didn't know much about comedy, didn't know much about cable, really wasn't the right guy for the job. Uh, I wasn't surprised. Problem is when they fire your boss, you know, you got, you're going to have issues with the new guy because the new guy is the new guy. So they brought the new guy in and he shunted me aside, but didn't throw me out. Uh, and he said, look, you know, you're, this is your channel. He, he said, your fingerprints are all over this channel. I gotta, I gotta start, you know, fresh here. So I can't have you here. That's ultimately where it went. Um, and I was, you know, I had never been fired before. I was, uh, I was devastated. I talk a lot about that in the book. Mm -hmm. I talk about that in the book. That's kind of the end of it for me. That's the end of the book. Cause that's the adventure I wrote about yeah. starting it to the, to the day I left. Um, and it took me a little while to get over it. Let me say that. But you know, I went back to work pretty quickly. I, I did some consulting for a couple of years at other television channels. I got to court TV. I helped put that back together. Uh, Cause that was a basically a channel that was dead in the water when I got there. Um, and we redesigned that. We reprogrammed it. We redid it. Made it successful. What so, was, um, hold on, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask. So, at what point do you you uh, go? You know what? I need to write about that. That I need to. I need to. I need to write about this. And then reliving those experiences was it was it kind of emotional to really dig into some of those times. Okay. So, in answer to your first question, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just rapid firing here. <laughs> Trying to keep it straight here. Um, <laughs> yeah. In answer to your first question, I, I worked at Court TV until, I don't know, 2006, 2007. Then I joined up with a couple other guys. I, I was at a point where we had made Court TV very successful. Turner came in and bought it for a huge amount of money. And I was at the, at the same crossroads. You know, Turner was going to, they said, look, you can stay, but we're not, you know, if you want to stay at Turner, you're going to have to move to Atlanta, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I said, look, I had the first channel I made taken out from under me. Now they're taking out this channel out from under me. Um, I don't want to do another channel. You know, I don't want to go to another channel right now, but I will consult. So I got together with a couple other guys um, from the television business and we started a business and we were consulting and we did a lot of fun stuff for probably 10 years. I was, I was consulting or maybe a little less than that, eight years. Towards the end of my consulting career, I felt it slipping away, not slipping. I felt myself getting tired of working in the business. You know, I just kind of didn't want to do that stuff anymore. I'd always wanted to write. I'd done a little bit of writing. 
Um, so I kind of phased out of consulting. Uh, and when the last project came in that was aimed at me, I said, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take it. And left the consulting business and started writing. Now, my wife was the one who was clever enough to say, look, I know you want to write because I had been doing some. She said, why don't you take a course at Sarah Lawrence? Mm -hmm. Sarah Lawrence had a writing has a writing institute. I give them a big shout out. They, they are, are terrific. And there were people in there like me who, you know, had kind of come to the point in their careers uh, where they wanted to write instead of doing what they've been doing. So, and oh, there were also very uh, good published authors in class and teaching classes. So that's when I first started getting into a writer's community. I was writing initially mostly memoir about myself as a kid. And one day I took to class or to my writing group, a piece I wrote about something that happened at Comedy Central. And the group went, wow, that's cool. I, we didn't know you did that. And I said, yeah, I did that. And they said, well, write some more about it. We want to hear some more. And I was a little taken aback. And I said, you know, I just, I just wrote 150,000 words about my childhood and growing up. <laughs> You're like, this is, that's, that's the emotion. This Which is you like. me. <laughs> I poured my heart out to you people. I told you everything. And that's really the process. That's really memoir writing in a yeah. nutshell. You know, you have to sort of, if you don't pour your heart out, it's not, it's, it's, it's just, it's not interesting. Right. It's, it's about the honesty. When, you, when, when we read something, it just, you can just tell that there's just utter honesty, just even on the emotional level, you know. It's the yeah, you have to put yourself out there and, and you have to do it in a, a clever way, you know. Yeah. So you're, you keep an audience, but it's also honest. And there was a saying in, among the memoirists, you know, just because it happened doesn't mean it's true. And that, that really, you know, that really struck a chord with me because what you want to, you want to write these memoirs for a reason, not just to report on what you were doing, right. but to, to say something to somebody about life or, you know, how your life can be, the lessons you learned in your life can be maybe useful to someone reading the book. So anyway, I mean, not. not or, or they can laugh at us and go, man, that's just, that's such a tragedy. I'm never doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stay an economist. <laughs> no, well, maybe, maybe that's right. But I, I you know, listen, I, I wrote, I, 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 as I wrote it, I realized what I was coming, coming up with was a great adventure that I had in the entertainment industry, kind of a fish out of water adventure because I didn't know much about the comedy business when I got in there, but I learned. And then, you know, I stayed with the channel and then I got fired. I mean, that's a, that's a story arc right there. What's, um, what's interesting is you bring that to a workshop and you um, I don't, I'm putting words in your mouth. So tell me I'm out of my mind or if it rings true, you probably don't even feel like there's a story there because you just lived it. That was your daily life. It's just like, wait, do I even, how do I write that? Because that's just, that was just, that was my gig. That's what I do. Was that kind of the vibe you had or was that? Well, I, I was probably saying something like that. If some, if somebody ever said to me while I was there or even, you know, while I was at Court TV or consulting, you know, you got to write that up, that whole, uh, that whole Comedy Central episode of your life. I would nod and smile, you know, and say, yeah, it's probably a good idea. One guy actually said to me from Comedy Central, he says, man, if you ever write a book about what happened, I'm going to option it. Uh, he didn't, by the way, but anyway. It was a, it, <laughs> Wait, what's his name so we can call him out? No, 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 I'm not going to do that We'll tweet him. him at, what, what was his name again? <laughs> I'm not going to do that to him. It was, 
but it was it was an interesting moment. But I, I really had no intention of writing it. Uh, I, but when I saw the reaction of people, I realized that I could write a book that was about the start of the channel that has become a cultural powerhouse. Most of the people watching the channel now probably had no idea how it got started. Um, and they probably thought it just kind of sprung up and it was like instantly successful. Hey, wow, Comedy Central, great. Um, and the story is so completely different from that. I thought that's going to be, that could be interesting for a lot of fans of Comedy Central and people who want to see what a real, how a real television network works. I wrote this as a behind the scenes uh, book. You know, I mean, that's, I never told a story uh, about something where I wasn't there. So it, the, the book's really about me and my experience, but it also sort of tracks what, how Comedy Central developed. And the feedback I've been getting so far, it just launched, but the feedback I've been getting so far is, is, has been great. And people have said just that, man, you feel like you're right there, you know, which is what I wanted to do. And I wanted to give them a sense of how difficult the whole thing was and how emotional it was and how I felt about uh, launching a comedy network and how I felt about leaving a comedy network that I had started. So that's really, that's really uh, how, it, how it happened. And I, uh, I got very involved writing it. The, um, the, um, oh, I just lost my thought. That, that was your second question, by the way. Did you get, did you, did you, were you emotional when you were writing it? Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you about writing for me. You know, some people don't like writing very much because it's hard, but, and I, I admit that it's hard, but there's something about it I like too. You know, I enjoy the process. Um, so I would write some of this stuff and then I'd read it and then maybe I'd get emotional. I wouldn't get emotional when I'm writing it. But then I'd read it like later that night or something and go, wow, man. That, and that would make me laugh or cry. And that's when I knew I was, you know, really onto something. Yeah. And I mean, were you looking at back at scenes and just like having huge regrets too, going, oh, I could have done that better. What was I thinking? I mean, that's well, what I do when I go to sleep every night. So that's why I, <laughs> I have a lot of, I, I, guess, I guess I think about mistakes I made in my life. But um, I also know that I did the best I could. You know, I really did the best I could. And on some level, I was very, very successful at not only starting the channel, but keeping it going when the merger happened. I mean, you got to imagine, I mean, these are two different cultures, uh, you know, television cultures coming together. And man, that was, that was a, that could have gone nuclear, but it didn't go nuclear because I was hell bent on making sure there was a comedy network in the world. And we work together. So no, I, I don't. I I don't think of it as something where I could have done something better and had a better outcome. The, what was the better outcome I could have had? By the time I left comedy, it was successful. It was you know yeah. making money and people were starting to really pay attention to it. And then the Daily Show came on, and we know where that went. Um, but the only thing I could have done better is kept kept myself from getting fired. But that wasn't that wasn't going to happen. And that's. That was the lesson I learned there that, you know, you, you just because you start a company doesn't mean they're going to keep you there forever. Um, 
And that's interesting. Yeah. In the entertainment industry, so much of it, it seems like, is um, there, there's fear. It, it, it comes from fear of not keeping the job or fear. A lot of people have, I see that around a little bit, you know, where it's just, there's that run of fear of not like going out on the limb, not, not pushing forward. But, uh, but shifting that and just you know, when you, when you're running it and you have, and you're just like, no, here's my vision. Um, it seems like you ran less from fear and more from like, here's how we're going to shift. Let's shift. Let's keep shifting. Yeah. I, you know, at the time it was really about problem solving constantly, you know, what, what's working, what's not working. How do we solve this problem? How do we get to the next step? I mean, I was constantly faced with the prospect of uh, in the first year or two that they were going to shut us down, that they were just going to say, look, it's not working. It's too much money. Didn't work. Nice try. Let's make it somebody else's problem. Um, but they didn't partly because we were pushing so hard to keep that thing going and to find ways to make it work. You know, so we put politically incorrect with Bill Moore on the air and that worked great. We put, we did uh, the state of the union undressed. I don't know if you recall that, but we, we covered the state of the union address live in 1992 and we had comedians talking about it as it went out over the live feed. And that was about the craziest television anybody had seen at the time. First guy to do it, Al Franken. We got Al Franken to do oh, it. Oh, wow. You know, and he was, he was at Saturday Night Live then. You know, yeah. he, was, he was a big deal. He did a great job. He really was funny. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was when the critics noticed us. They said, wow, this, this comedy network, they're, they're, this comedy network is really doing some interesting television here. Um, again, there were moments like that along the way where I knew, okay, this is going to be my dream come true. It's not today, but it's definitely heading in that direction. And you can draw a straight line between that moment of uh, the, the State of the Union undressed, we called it, um, to The Daily Show. I mean, we covered the Republican yeah. convention. John Stewart helped us cover the conventions in those days um, and the Democratic convention. And we knew we were onto something. We knew we were bringing an audience to what's happening today in a comedic way, which is really, you know, in some ways what comedy is about, you know, looking through a comedic lens at something that happens all the time so that you can see it in a new way or you can appreciate it. Right. It's, and it's at the same time, like politics to me is boring, but when, but when you bring but when there's a comedic angle on it, then I'm, then there's, then I'm interested. Well, you got to think of the fact that what ended up happening with the daily show is John Stewart became uh the Walter Cronkite, and I don't know if you know yeah. that reference, but the Walter yeah. Cronkite uh, for the under 30 crowd. Yeah. Because that's where they got their news. They believed John Stewart, and he was believable for yeah. good reason. Smart, empathetic, uh, uh, compassionate, uh, and, and a good storyteller. And that's where they got their news. And that previously, that generation was, believe me, those guys were not watching news. Young men were watching sports, and that was about it. Yeah. So um, we brought no, I was, that. We brought I was that. a Daily Show guy. Even yeah. even on Craig Kilborn days, I was a Daily Show guy. And then, and, then went to, and then I went to John Stewart. I knew who he was. And I'm like, oh, my God, of course, John Stewart. You know, yeah, just, right, right. And then, yeah. that, you know, coming out of that, we got Steve Colbert. We got um, Carell. Samantha B. Yeah. What's that? Samantha oh, yeah, B. yeah, yeah. Um, that was an interesting thing, too. Mm -hmm. Women got a better shot at Comedy Central, I think, than they had been given anywhere else. You know, yeah. I think, I think, I think women comedians, women writers, you know, uh, and of course now 
you see a lot of you see a lot of uh, women comedians, but you know, in the early days, you didn't see that many. In the seventies, eighties, just wasn't happening like that. Right. And, and I think that's a good thing. Of course, it's a great thing. Well, what's great about it is comedy's either funny or it's not, uh, and and so that's kind of how comedy lives and dies. There's just there's a beautiful um, justice almost to it, you know, where it's just like. Anyone can have a shot at it. Just be funny. That's it. And you know, but or maybe best, I'm sim- maybe I'm simplifying things. No, maybe, no, maybe best, no, no. You, you know, I'll tell you a story. The head writer. We had a head writer at Comedy Channel, and he had been a sitcom writer. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he was doing. He's a very funny guy, but he was a kind of scary guy too. If, if he's in the book, and he, when I first met him, he said. To me, first, you don't know anything about comedy. And then he said, comedy doesn't always have to be funny, which is a line I repeat in the book, because I remember thinking, you know, is, it was almost like, you know, that Zen thing or, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Right. It, was just, it was just such a twist on, on everybody's, and certainly my perception, that if it's not funny, it's not comedy. Mm-hmm. And I thought a lot about what he said for the next 30 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it, there's something in it, and I'm not sure what it is, but Lenny Bruce wasn't always funny. You know, I mean, he got arrested a lot. Uh, I think some of, the, some of the really great comedians have told the truth, and that's what was great about them. Uh, being funny at the same time was, of course, important. I, I read about some comedians now, so, some of the women comics who are pretty hard, you know, where some of their, some of their comedy is not considered funny by anybody. Uh, so it's, it's, it was an interesting observation then, and I think it's, it's worth thinking about now. Me, I like my comedy funny most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I know that, you know, these comedy clubs are like, yeah, we need four laughs a minute. Or you're out. You well, know. Sit- sitcoms for sure. You know, yeah. That's, if you're not getting laughs on a sitcom. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. But uh, it, well, was a, it was an observation I always found interesting. I, I, yeah, I'm, it's probably going to plague me for the next uh, <laughs> few decades as well. All my, all my uh, beliefs are shattered in, in two minutes. You know what's uh, I I'm, I remember this I'm remembering the story of how David Letterman started their first year on uh, the late night talk show because they didn't think they they didn't think they were gonna get, ever get renewed I if I'm right I don't correct me if I'm wrong I just remember the story where that first year that's when they um they just were like you know what screw it let's just do whatever we want because we're not getting renewed and then having that freedom and doing whatever they want kind of started the David Letterman show like empire of how he ran a late night talk show. Listen, there's a certain amount of going up to the line and stepping over the line that's involved in, in good comedy. We certainly saw that with, I mean, that's how Bill pitched the show. Bill Maher pitched his politically incorrect. He said that I want to make it politically incorrect. I want to go up to the line and jump over it all the time and then jump back. So I don't get canceled. Um, and, and I think that's, if, if you're not getting in trouble occasionally with your comedy, you're probably not, you know, really working it the right way, I think. Because we got in trouble with Comedy Central all the time. Uh, 
and proud of it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're really like, okay, great, we're doing our job. <laughs> we we did a joke. We did a joke in a promo about Ronald Reagan. Now think about that. It's a 30 second promotion for some show we were doing, and it it uh, it took a shot at Ronald Reagan. It wasn't even president then. And we heard about that. We got in trouble for that. We were told to take it off the air. You know, I don't even remember what the joke was. To me, it was like seriously. <laughs> but yeah, you know, but but you have to get in trouble a little bit with comedy. And we know a lot of comedians who get in trouble. Bill Maher got in trouble. He got yeah. canceled by ABC because he got in so much trouble. Yeah. Um, and then luckily he got picked up by HBO. But um, Gilbert Godfrey, we know he got in a lot of trouble for. I just found out about that because I interviewed, there was this uh, comedian who wrote a book, her, her name's Judy Gold, and she wrote a Judy book Gold. about, um, yeah, great. she wrote a book, I don't know if you've, uh, her new book about, you know, how I we, know about her new book. yeah, and we talked about Gilbert Gottfried and just how someone can, uh, what was, it, it was, I, I don't even remember the joke, but I just remember how uh, visceral it was when he's canceled and he's like, oh my God, I didn't mean it like that. This was I can't remember I, the joke either, but it, it was definitely way over the line. Um, yeah. My, my, I don't know if Judy told this Gilbert Gottfried story, but Gilbert Gottfried, um, a week and a half after 9-11, was at a roast for Hugh Hefner, at, given by the Friars Club. And I, I happened to be there. And Gilbert Gottfried got up there to do his part of the roast. And he started to tell a joke about 9-11. And the crowd just shut him down so fast. Too soon, too soon. Everybody's screaming, too soon. And I was holding my breath thinking, oh my God, if he goes, if he goes on with this, it's going to be a freaking disaster. Yeah. He stopped. He stopped. And he told uh, one of the great jokes of all time, the, arist the aristocrats joke, which, you know, he was in, Penn Jillette made a movie out of it. That's yeah. probably where Penn got the idea. He said, oh my God, that's the greatest that was the greatest telling of the, of the aristocrats joke I ever heard. But that's how Gilbert got out of 9-11 joke and into something that, you know, made him famous. Uh, interesting. Nobody shouted, him, nobody shouted him down on whatever got him in big trouble. But he could have used the help. And that's, um, I mean, that's, that's just expertise of a comedian reading a room going, wait a second, this is way too far. Yeah, you know, he's, pro he's probably doing a lot of calculations in his head and going, you know what, too far, let's move it back to this. You know, About that roast. Yeah, he was shouted down basically at the roast. Okay. It's not like I'm feeling a vibe. It's <laughs> they're coming to crucify That's me. That's my recollection of it anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not looking at the tape, but I remember right. it that way. That yeah. he just, there was no way he could get another word out about that show. Yeah, yeah. And he stopped. And everybody quieted down, waiting to hear what he was going to say. And he said, and he started the aristocrat joke. And everybody realized what he was doing. And they went nuts. Oh, so, man. yeah. So, yeah, you got to get in trouble, but not in such deep trouble that you're, you know, you're off the air. Yeah. There, I, you know, I watched this movie, and this, uh, this is a smash cut to something else. I think it's called, it's something about the apex, and Brad Pitt narrates it, and he um, they were they produced it, and it's about um, the motorcycle races in Italy, and um, and how those bikers have to be doing 212, 213 miles an hour to to just get to to um, to get to the top. But they also have to crash. If you don't crash, you never know how far you can push it. And that, it just it, that kind that's, of blew my it. mind, and it always reminds me of the the line. It's like you got it. 
if they were just like, you can't be in this game if you do not crash because you need to know that crash like point. Well, in comedy, that's, that's it. You got to know where the line is. And sometimes you're going to cross it. And sometimes you're going to have to pull back uh, to save your, to save your act. Um, so that is the story of comedy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, so now what about all the memoirs of your childhood? When are we seeing those? Well, you know, hopefully sometime soon. I actually put some of them on the, on the internet, on my uh, website, artbeltwriter.com. And I've gotten tremendous reactions. You know, people really like this stuff, um, which, which has given me heart. Uh, but I, I will say I am actually forging ahead doing some fiction for the first time as well. Oh, Writing that's what I was going to ask you. A novel yeah. or a short story? Short stories. Well, I've been doing short stories, but some of the short stories – get long and I say, Hey, maybe this, you know, maybe this is it. I'll fall into the novella at, at least. Right. But, uh, but we will see. Anyway, I, I, I am really happy that I got the first book out. I hope a lot of people read it cause I, it's a, it's a crazy story that, that I think is really interesting. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. It's, Thank you. it's such a hard time to release a book now cause we would be at, you know, different bookstores and it's, it's just so Believe hard me. to release it. During Believe now. me, it's hard. So I, I, you know, I appreciate you putting me on your show here, your podcast, because that, that helps get the word out about the book. Yeah. Hey, Art, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay. Thank you for having me. Art Bell on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Next week on the show, we have Lee Goodkind. He's the author of My Last 8,000 Days. Hey, have a great weekend. I'll see you next Wednesday. You're listening to KPCRLP, Santa Cruz 101.9 FM.